Hebrews Bible Study, Part 8 Jesus, the High Priest For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews, Chapter 4, beginning in the 14th verse. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then in confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Two motifs. In the previous passage, the author of Hebrews delivers the second exhortation, urging his readers to enter God's rest. He explains that we no longer enter the Sabbath day by waiting for a particular day of the week to arrive. Instead, The Sabbath is understood to be a state of being, entered in by faith. Thus the bulk of obedience to the third commandment is observed in holding fast to faith in Christ Jesus and in the word of God. But then in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, the author almost treats this previous passage as a parenthetical interruption, pivoting to Christ himself as the great high priest. This is not to say that the previous subject matter was unimportant, but rather that the author wants to return to his second motif. At the beginning of Hebrews, the author establishes the first motif, that Jesus Christ is fully divine. He is God, being above all angels, making belief in him mandatory for anyone who desires to be faithful to the Lord. But with that, The matter of his human nature must be addressed. It is actually sensible for someone to ask, Yes, Jesus is God, making him my Lord. But what is he to me when it comes to his humanity? This question must be answered lest we fail to grasp the importance of the incarnation. Worse yet, one might begin to perceive Jesus as an absentee savior, a divine figure who died on a cross long ago but cares not for those who he saved, doing nothing for them. 
it would be easy to rebuff this kind of fear with rote demands for worship. To say, Christ does not exist for you, you exist for him. After all, Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, Christ is the one for whom all things exist. He owes us nothing, and we owe him everything, so we must not complain when feeling that he is distant and uncaring. But such a harsh answer would be cold comfort to a people beset by persecutions and misery. It gives the impression that a cold-hearted Jesus died for us solely so that whoever believes in him is left alone and made to suffer, with his sovereignty being this club with which to browbeat people into silence. Without the incarnation and the continuing ministry of Christ in his humanity, one is left with a Trinitarian version of the Islamic God at best, and a remote deistic version of God at worst. Thankfully, the second motif in Hebrews, the priesthood of Jesus, dispels any worries like that. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 establish that his incarnation, establishing his priesthood, was chiefly to enact the atonement in the purest way, and in adding a human nature he underwent temptation, thus making him better able to help us when we are tempted. He also establishes Christ's role as high priest in connection with his superiority over Moses, as one managing the house of Israel, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. There is a sense now in which Jesus Christ, in his humanity, serves the believers in this role currently, rather than only at the cross. Various Bible study resources point to the priesthood motif as evidence for the prophet, priest, and king roles that are said to be chief among Christ's post-resurrection activities. One might be surprised to find the author of Hebrews, who writes to a congregation of Hebrew Christians who heretofore were awaiting the Davidic Messiah. He does not dwell on the kingship of Christ the way St. Matthew does. It is mentioned, and the Psalms brought up thus far touch on it, but aside from that, kingdom language is mostly reserved for just the latter half of the twelfth chapter. For the author of Hebrews, it is more important to discuss Jesus as high priest. Why is this? If we might be permitted to speculate, the context of the congregation he wrote to matters. The Hebrew Christian in the first century AD is detoxing from Jewish life at this time, having been raised with regular trips to the temple in Jerusalem and with strict observance of the Mosaic law, the temptation to go back to that life and religion would be a strong one. In first century Jewish religion, one sees what the priests do for the people more clearly than the Christian might have, as they play a public role in sacrifice, health inspection, teaching the word, and settling disputes. It was altogether very necessary that an apostolic writer should teach them exactly what Christ does in their day-to-day -day life, especially in connection to the Sabbath. If the priests worked during the Sabbath day for the daily sacrifices, 
then we who are called to rest in Christ may rest assured that he is doing much more for us than any normal priest ever could. In so doing, while he spends most of this passage detailing what Jesus does as high priest, the author clearly establishes Christ's superiority over the entirety of the Jewish religious structure. Now, going into actual commentary, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If anyone should wonder where this high priest is, he has passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Yet in spite of this, he is not distant, but actually sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows us well, even individually, making it the case that a normal priest, especially those who were in Jerusalem, is more distant than Christ. Verse 16 puts this in a positive light, in that Jesus, having had the same struggles as we do, means we may boldly draw near his throne for mercy and grace. Contra those denominations who demand satisfaction before absolution is granted during confession, the sense of the text is that one may simply go to the Christ and proclaim, Dear Savior, I have sinned and I am sorry. I beg your forgiveness. And he shall receive the forgiveness for which he asks. Does this negate private and corporate confession? Absolutely not, as James 5.16 and elsewhere in Scripture shows that we are given the task of confessing to one another. But part of the office of the keys is relating the mercy which Christ has promised us here in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. Verse 15 establishes that Jesus Christ was entirely sinless. He was without sin, negating sins of deed, nature, and thought. We may hear various commentators argue whether Christ was incapable of sinning and whether this impacts the reading of the text. Scripture is silent on it, but assures us that Jesus truly was tempted in the same ways we are, but was triumphant against such temptations. He never failed, while other priests certainly have in the past. Thus he, being unfailing and sympathetic at the same time, can and must be trusted. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A key definition is presented in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 here. A high priest is defined as someone appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. If this is the case, then calling Jesus our high priest means this is what Jesus does for us, with a key difference, in that he has offered himself as the final sacrifice and thus merely has to be in the presence of the Father to be a sacrifice presented. So if any should ask, what has Jesus done for me lately? The answer is definitively given in this chapter. At the very least, he has acted on your behalf in relation to the Father. If any of your prayers have been answered, it is because of Jesus, your high priest. A bit of comparison is offered here as well. A normal priest has to have a humble outlook toward the afflicted sinners he deals with, because he himself is beset with weakness and must also make sacrifices for his own sin. Our Savior is not so burdened. But while Jesus is not required to make any sacrifices on his own behalf, there is a requirement which he shares with the lowly priests in the Old Covenant, that of being selected. If someone is going to be a go-between for God and man, or a mediator, then they must be selected by God first. This is known as the immediate call. The congregation confirms it through appointment, making human selection a immediate call. In the Old Testament, the priesthood operated differently, namely by being a descendant of Aaron instead of being a called pastor. But the author bolsters his case by mentioning that Aaron and his family were chosen by God. Their appointment by the Lord gives them an immediate call. Jesus, too, fulfills this requirement by being appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, though he was already beyond qualified as the Son of God. If someone should ask about the immediate call of Christ, Truth be told, it is not necessary for him. But even so, for the Aaronic priesthood, the observance of the sacrificial system by the children of Israel functions as their immediate call. Though it was commanded, it still fulfilled this function. The case could be made that the faith and worship of all believers offered to Jesus act in a similar fashion. Commanded, but nonetheless offered freely as an acceptance of Christ, our high priest. One might ask why Melchizedek's is the priestly order to which Jesus was appointed. The author will explain this in greater detail later, so we will also reserve most of the explanation for the day when we arrive at that passage. However, suffice it to say that one important reason is that the Messiah was prophesied to be descended from David, establishing his right to the throne of Israel. But at the same time, the Messiah is shown to function in a priestly role. The order of Melchizedek squares this circle for the king and high priest of the church, who descends from Judah but not Aaron. More details will follow in the coming weeks. Hebrews 5 verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As with Hebrews 2 verse 10, which teaches that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sins on account of his obedience, the author is now discussing that same obedience as a product of suffering. While certainly there was physical suffering, toil and misery involved, it is in the immediate context of fulfilling his office of high priest. He suffered by offering up prayers and supplications to the point of tears. If he had not done these things on our behalf, he could not have been an appropriate sacrifice for us, the author relates. It is precisely by the toil and pain of reverent intercession that he learned the obedience which made him a perfect sacrifice. In other words, Christ's priestly function is a key part in the atonement. Someone might balk at the notion that Jesus, being God, ever had to learn anything. The sense of the text, however, is that this is an experiential learning. The word utilized demonstrates reflection upon lived experiences, rather than a, an accumulation of skill or head knowledge. It is through his intercessory suffering on our behalf that he knew what it is like to be tempted and to struggle with the same things men struggle with as well. The author is recalling Hebrews 4.15, which says our Lord can sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, yet he is without sin. Going through this in his earthly walk, he became eminently qualified so that no one could question what he has done and is still doing for us. Amen and amen.